Did you know that our brain is connected to our gut? And that can affect things like mood, anxiety, and even depression. In this interview, we're gonna talk about the gut-brain connection. Hi everyone, I'm Andrew Donsky, co-founder of Morphis, powered by Naturally Savvy. And today I am here with Dr. Uma Naidu, a chef, nutritionist, and psychiatrist, and soon to be author of This Is Your Brain on Food. Welcome to the show, Dr. Naidu. Thanks, Andrea. It's great to be here and I appreciate you having me on. I'm very excited to have you on because I do, I love talking about the gut-brain connection and I would love you to delve into and explain why what is that connection and why is it so important for us to understand what it is? Thanks, Andrew. You know, it's one of my favorite subjects too. And part of it is because as a doctor, I see um, a lot of people who come in understanding that they have to eat for better, um, you know, for their better health or management of diabetes or eat because they have high blood pressure. But I don't hear patients or clients coming in and talking about eating for better mental health. And that's where there's a sort of missing link of understanding a little bit more about the fact that the brain and gut are connected even for mental health and other conditions. Um, you know, it starts, it starts, actually starts before we were born, uh, when the, you know, go back to biology classes in school, when the egg meets the sperm and the zygote is formed, it really does form as far back as that. And out of the embryo, embryology and the embryo, embryology lessons we had, the embryo then forms different organs, as we know. But one of the things that remains connected throughout is the brain and the gut. And while they separate to different parts of the body, so we don't not normally think, oh, these are connected, they always remain connected by the vagus nerve, which runs between those two regions and therefore carries signals all the time, up and down, back and forth, bidirectionally, and uh, throughout time. So, so they are intimately related. And therefore, I think if we understood how to eat for that reason, it, it could help us on, on many levels. So when you say that it starts way back when we're in the womb, do you mean that the health of that vagus nerve or you're talking about just the fact that it, it is connected? Oh, so I'm, so I'm really just talking about the embryology lesson there, uh, taking us back to biology and that it starts that, that far back. Got it. Okay. It's clear. Thank you. Now, when you talk about eating and making sure that we're eating to, you know, obviously optimize the gut brain connection, what are some foods that you recommend that we should be eating on a regular basis? You know, it's interesting because many people sort of think, well, you know, you, every, every doctor tells me I should eat more vegetables. So every doctor says I should have green salads um, or my dietitian tells me to do something. The truth is that um, fruit and vegetables have natural fiber, um, unlike other, uh, unlike um, animal proteins and that type of thing. And we can get the most bang for our buck in terms of feeding and nurturing our gut, and I'll explain why in a second, by eating those healthy fruits and vegetables. So they become more meaningful than eat more greens or you know add a vegetable to your dish or whatever it is. It becomes, it becomes important because the richness of the fiber, and not to say that they don't have vitamins, nutrients, um, you know, micronutrients, macronutrients, all in the food, which then feeds the, back, uh, the gut bacteria in a positive way. So essentially what that does, and I'm, I'm sure I don't need to explain it to you, Andrea, is that they, the, the, the good bugs thrive and the not so great bugs who are kind of working against us and our health and our mental health, 
uh, are, are tampered down. They're there, but they, they're not in control. Um, so simple, simple things, increasing the amount of fiber you're eating through uh, the way that you eat your fruits and vegetables, having a what we call a biodiversity of plants uh, right. to help your gut along is super important. And then there are things like prebiotics as part of that and probiotics, so fermented foods, mm-hmm. um, you know, yogurts, even non-dairy yogurts now have some cultures in them, but also finding those uh, probiotics through food. I love that you're talking about pre and probiotics. So I, I, I would love to get into a definition of what each one is. And so that we're very clear because we do need to eat both on a regular basis. So can you please define them? Sure. So prebiotics, are, I, I think of them sort of as the allium family, sort of the onions, the scallions, the leeks, the um, the garlic. Um, and I think about them that way, things like jicama, um, Jerusalem artichoke are some examples. And there are generally some good food lists online. But these, the, what these do is they, they feed, they are actual food for the good bacteria. And with probiotics, we are looking at sort of what we what we consider to be live cultures or live bacteria that we obtain through different food sources. And there are other ways to get them, but one way is through uh, probiotic-rich foods, as well as things like fermented foods. So fermented foods, kimchi, kefir, or soured, soured yogurt, um, miso, um, things like that, pickles uh, as well. So, so a sauerkraut, things that are fermented will also help our gut along. So those are those are the two areas we want to think think about. When you talk about fermented foods, is it safe to eat them on a daily basis? It's absolutely safe to eat them. I would say that if you have a good source, or you maybe you make your own. Um, the thing that I uh, always uh, I, I suggest to my patients is to make sure that they're not highly sugared because pickles are fermented food, but they can also be very sugared. Certainly mm-hmm. in the US, we 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 tend to have that issue. So sometimes my patients will get simple recipes and try them out at home. Um, everything you know, my my. Meal plans and the nutritional psychiatry work that I do tends to be very highly personalized exactly because our guts are so unique uh, to each one of us. So in a similar way, I would say everything in moderation, you know, certainly including uh, fermented foods every day is awesome, uh, but not only eating that. I actually really love kombucha. I have to say like, it's one of those foods and it's obviously for those of you who don't know what kombucha is, it's a fermented tea and it's, I kind of look at it as my treat. Like I I just, I love to drink it every single, and I love to drink it every day, but then that's why I'm asking that question because some kombuchas can be high in sugar. So I do think um, that's an important point that you're mentioning. So thank you. The, I want to talk next about the, connection to our mental health and our gut. Now, one of the things I noticed is that I, I used to have terrible anxiety. I had it, I got it in my early 20s and it lasted for many years. And I noticed that when I'm taking a daily probiotic, a daily supplement, or eating my fermented foods, I find that it helps to keep it in check. And now we know the research shows that it actually has they're connected because the gut is connected to the brain. And we know that most of the serotonin that is made is, is in our gut. And can you talk a little bit about what that mental health connection is and how can we help ourselves? Is it by eating? Like this is your brain on food. Obviously you will talk about that in your book, but what are some ways that we can really help to balance out our mental health through our gut? Absolutely. So um, I think the, 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 the things that, that, 
people may not know. Um, the serotonin receptors, the serotonin, the happy hormone, the one that we talk about, medications that are prescribed to treat, treat depression, are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, things like Prozac or fluoxetine, sertraline, Paxil, and using a combination of the generic and pharmaceutical names. But um, many of those all, all act on serotonin. So the fact that there's so many serotonin, more than 90% in the gut, gives us a clue that we can then have an impact on serotonin through what we eat. So we eat something delicious, maybe healthy, maybe not, it enters our mouth, it goes all the way down to our gut, and then the interactions start happening. They actually start beginning in the mouth, but the food in the gut is impacting serotonin. And when you when you eat healthier foods and you say eat the fiber-rich foods we spoke about or a really real diversity of foods that will help your gut, serotonin thrives. Your, your gut bacteria thrives, serotonin is happy, it does what it's supposed to do. But when we eat a not so great diet, um, you may have short-term effects of sort of that, you know, you say eat something that you enjoy and you immediately feel great. The issue is that is twofold. In the moment that high fat, highly, uh, 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 un, I would say, I was going to say unhealthy, but that whatever the unhealthy food is, you may enjoy it in the moment. It actually may, may make you feel good. I wouldn't deny that. It does impact serotonin in that way, but the problem is that it also causes your insulin to spike. And there are ways in which the hormone, uh, basically the hormonal system in your body gets, gets off track. So between disrupting your gut by the unhealthy food, maybe you have that boost of serotonin, you initially feel happy or, or, or pleased that you had, you know, a bowl of ice cream, whatever it is. If you do it in an ongoing way, what happens is inflammation gets set up in your body. And the inflammation in your gut actually is synonymous with developing neuroinflammation in your brain. So if you're eating poorly, that does happen over time. It doesn't happen in a day. It doesn't happen with one bowl of ice cream. Um, and you know, I don't mean to pick an ice cream, but you know, the, it, it, it tends to be a processed food if you if you're buying it in a store versus making it at home where you you know what the ingredients are, etc. So um, that's one of the ways in which you set off dysbiosis or an imbalance in your gut. How would somebody know if they have inflammation in their gut? Because sometimes, you know, obviously when we have inflammation on our hand, we can tell, but when it's in our, in our bodies, we can't always tell. So what would be some indicators that there is inflammation going on? That's a great question. And part of it is that we have to, we have to really understand the symptoms that someone is coming in with. For example, the patient um, came in complaining of significant panic and he was confused because he'd never had the symptom of severe anxiety and panic before. And as I got more history and spoke to him, it turns out that his gastroenterologist sent him to see me because um, they felt that you know he, he had panic disorder and it needed treatment. But here's the thing, as we delved deeper, he was having significant gastrointestinal symptoms. So his bowel was totally disrupted. He was having bouts of constipation, bouts of you know loose stool, but diarrhea, discomfort, bloating, gas, and part of it is he had changed his diet. He had taken on a new job about eighteen months prior. Was eating mostly fast foods, hardly ever eating at home, um, vending machine foods because he was working late hours. He couldn't get proper meals, so he was eating out a lot and uh, and on a consistent basis. And he even shared this with me. And as we sort of un unpacked this information. Over about 
18 months, he had really changed. He had also gained some weight, but what we realized is that it had disrupted his gut through the inflammation that it caused. But this presenting symptom that was bothering him the most was the anxiety and the panic. And what we therefore had to do is sort of work slowly back to create a personalized plan for him so that he could eat healthier, eat foods that he liked, um, do, you know, it's a very holistic, integrated sort of functional psychiatry approach where I look at the root cause, which is what I'm describing. So although I comment and work most closely on the food, I'm also giving um, my, my, my clients sort of a very overall kind of plan of the things they should be doing. So things like exercise are important, mindfulness, meditation, um, all of that all of that counts. But those are the things we did to help him to help him really get better without medication in that instance. Hmm. And are there tests that we could do to help determine whether there's inflammation going on in the gut? Absolutely. So there, there are some tests that can be done. And because if they are so specific, you'd want to speak to your doctor about that, share your symptoms to your doctor, especially since certainly in the US, the out our testing is based um, is insurance based, so you definitely want to provide the symptoms to your doctor. I'm not saying they can't order the test, but he he or she will then determine. I think you should get this battery of tests or that, or this is what we should do next. Now, since you wrote a book, this is your brain on food. You know, I'm guessing that you're a very big fan of anti-inflammatory foods, and I would love you to give us some examples of some of your favorite anti-inflammatory foods. So I'm going to start with one of my favorite, what I call food groups, is which, which is spices. Um, I, I have a real love for spices, and part of it is that they really change the flavor and depth and um, sort of the profile um, of, of a type of food. And they usually are, you know, they're calorie free. And I always say, say you know, try to get a, a pure blend or make your own blend so that you're not purchasing one that has salt or added sodium in it. And so, you know, we naturally go to turmeric, which I think many people know is, is good for an anti-inflammatory food. But here's the thing, you just need about a quarter teaspoon a day to be effective. So you can certainly take that in the form of a capsule if you need to. But I say to my patients, have turmeric, always add a pinch of black pepper because that activates the curcumin, which is the active ingredient in turmeric by approximately up to 2000%. So it really is worth having that pinch of black pepper. And if you don't cook with it, I say put it in a smoothie, you know, uh, put it in a soup where you won't, won't even know it's there and you're still getting the benefit of it. So I, I start, I start with the spices and then, uh, you know, again, going to those foods which are going to help your gut. So the fiber rich foods, the fruits and vegetables that will naturally help sort of work almost work as work against inflammation by feeding your gut bacteria the right foods. At Morpheus, we talk about women, we talk to women who are in perimenopause and menopause. And at, we know as we get into this third act of life, inflammation can tend to increase, but also, you know, it's important that we really balance our blood sugar, which you talked about before too, you touched upon blood sugar. Mm -hmm. So what would, what would be some advice that you could give to women in perimenopause and menopause other than what we've discussed already, obviously eating anti-inflammatory foods, making sure that our blood sugar is regulated, very important for brain health as well. I love that. And, and perhaps you can go into a little bit about why, how insulin and blood sugar affects brain health. Absolutely. So, you know, I'll, um, I think that, that perimenopause, menopause are, are definitely different phases of life. And what I find is because I work 
in, um, in, in sort of a, in what I consider to be a very personalized way with patients, um, coming up with a nutrition plan that is unique to them. Why do I do that? Because each of us has a very unique microbiome. So the foods that you might eat are not necessarily the foods that might help me. What your body responds positively to in general terms may not be the same for me. And because of that, it's it's important to kind of design that for a person. And that's, that's why I've had the best success with my patients. Um, the, the thing that gets, that I find my patients with perimenopause and, and that phase of life share is that some foods that they previously ate no longer can be tolerated or create discomfort in their bodies. So again, you know, there are some, there are some schools of thought that say you need to give up certain food groups if this is happening. And I'm much more of the philosophy that unless some food is causing a problem for you and you've been tested for an allergy or, or an intolerance that is really uncomfortable, I would encourage you to eat everything, but just eat it in moderation. So things that help with um, with estrogen are supposed to be helpful. But again, that can be different for each person. So again, I would refer you back to your doctor, but you can include things like tofu and certain, certain types of soy. But people have some strong feelings about that too, based on the research. So that's why when someone walks into my office, I really understand what their specific profile is in order to make recommendations. I, I recently read this fascinating article, and I know that dark chocolate is wonderful, but it turns out that it's really good at this phase of life. It's super rich in antioxidants. Um, it has uh, a great profile in terms of the anti-inflammation that we spoke about. So that's a, and the darker the better. The 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 the, the cacao, the the raw form is actually the healthiest, and it is available in in certain locations. So I would say you know go big on the chocolate in 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 the right form as well. Oh, I'll take that. I'm like the hugest chocolate fan. So yes, so dark chocolate. <laughs> I love it. And also foods like broccoli and cauliflower. Yes. Making sure we eat the cruciferous vegetables to help balance our, our hormones as well. Help to move things along, like you said, because of the fiber. So I think um, I think those are great tips. And they have, uh, as, you, as you know, they have, they have uh, uh, positive chemicals like sulfurophanes in them. So, you know, the, the odd kind of uh, uh, aroma that those foods sometimes give off are also things that super, are super helpful for our gut. That's right. The sulfur, which is, uh, which is great. <laughs> Kale, Brussels sprouts. I mean, exactly. we can go on and all, on. All of, joy. Yes. All of the Christopher vegetables. Awesome. I love that. Dr. Naida, you talked about soy, like you mentioned it, that, you know, depending on the research, some people are pro, some people are, are against it. Can you talk about why it's such a controversial food, especially when it comes to this third act of life, perimenopause and menopause? Absolutely, because some of the research has indicated that, you know, it may not be the safest or best food um, during this phase of life. And yet other research has shown that if it's obtained through, you know, healthy food sources, that it should be completely okay. And it really depends so entirely on the relationship you have with that food, whether you've eaten it before, the symptoms that you're having. I mentioned earlier, Andrea, that sometimes people will come in and see me and say, you know, I, I can't, I can no longer tolerate beans. So I can no longer tolerate a very regular food that they were having. So, you know, in this instance, I would say, speak to your doctor, 
you know, discuss your symptoms. And one person in my office may not have any soy, and the other person may say have soy milk or something to to help them along. It's really it really is is very unique. But what I try to do is sort of provide both sides for the individual. And part of the reason for that is as a nutritional psychiatrist, in order to help people who are suffering with with mental problems, I have to really imbibe the philosophy of being open to things that they come in with. If not, you know, they, it's, it's hard enough to come and see a psychiatrist and, and for some people. So I want to be open to, to what they bring to the table, so to speak. Yeah. And I guess when it comes to soy in particular, there are people who are super for it, people, people who are against it. And I guess like also it's customized, right? For your body, for your hormones, how it reacts in your body. Exactly. Exactly. That's an excellent point. Yeah. So Sandra, we were talking only about blood sugar and, you know, part of the issue is that when you eat something that you may desire and may not be in what you know, we may think of as a healthy category, your, your brain, you know, does get to absorb some of that serotonin and might actually you might actually feel good for a while but what happens is to also take care of that um whatever the food is, you know, processed, um, high, in, high in a certain type of bad fat, um, high in preservatives, whatever it is, your insulin in the body really kicks in because that is the hormone that's going to help break down that food. And the number of times when, when you eat something unhealthy, the more your insulin will start to react and kick in. And people over time could develop things like insulin resistance and all of this then leads to gut inflammation and gut inflammation leads to inflammation in the brain. So what, what you want to try to do is keep your insulin happy in the sense that um, you want to keep it in a good in, in a good balance, almost like in a good flow. So think about eating something like a let's um, let's for for one want of another choice, something like you know a, a high. Um, a, a, a really cheesy mac and cheese um, dish that you've made versus something like a baked sweet potato with, um, you know, some avocado on the side, some healthy greens. If you, if you um, eat meat proteins, then maybe a piece of salmon or something like that. Now, the, with the mac and cheese, you know, you're, you're in, you it's a tasty, yummy food, but your insulin is going to react a certain way and it's going to create spikes in your body. So you'll have the insulin rise up suddenly, then drop down and that type of thing. But with something that is more of a complex carbohydrate, like a sweet potato, it's going to take longer to break down in your body. And so the insulin is not going to jump up and jump down, so to speak. So a better choice would be something that is going to take longer to break down in your body. And therefore, we call them complex carbohydrates. But at the same time, it doesn't cause that uneven feeling. Um, in your blood sugar levels, and that's why the insulin is reacting. Therefore, as you break down the food slowly, and fiber-rich foods, again, help that. They help things break down more slowly. Um, you then have an even level of your insulin and your blood sugar. So you might have slight highs and lows, but they're not the big jumps that happen. And that's, you know, the easiest way. That's how I think about it. And that's how I explain it. explain to the patients that I work with, because it, it's it's really about trying to maintain that balance uh, with your blood sugar and how the insulin reacts. And that is and course, totally impacted by your food, sorry. No, sorry to interrupt. And of course, blood sugar is connected to weight gain. And especially as we get older and our estrogen levels are dropping, our hormones are kind of in balance. 
we tend to put on a little bit more weight yes. and especially around the midsection. So yes. I know that you had some research around yo-yo dieting. Can you talk a little bit about how we should be eating, but also how yo-yo dieting could be effective? Absolutely. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, stress around the, uh, uh, gaining weight around the middle. The other thing to not exclude in this discussion is the high levels of stress that we face. Oh, Whatever the cool. cause of the stress then impacts our um, hormone levels, right? So, so it impacts cortisol, the stress hormone. And when that gets disrupted, that is not another way that inflammation gets created in our body. Um, you know, I, I was um, really producing some of the research and, and we, we, I looked at a lot, a lot of studies, um, scientific studies for this book. But one of the interesting things that I came across was, you know, people will often ask me in a lecture about yo-yo dieting. And, you know, people who have lost a significant amount of weight, and in fact, this has happened even on some reality TV shows, people have lost a significant amount of weight, but unfortunately, it's sort of boomeranged and has, and either they gain it back or they have difficulties thereafter. There was some research done in... Um, an animal study. And, you know, a, a lot of our basic science research has to be in the lab in that way. And then we, we, we grow them out into human studies. But one of the things they showed was that when um, the, the microbiome was totally unique in mice that were lean and in mice that were were, that were fat. So they were fat, fed high fat or poor diets, and the others were maintained lean. And when they did a transplant of the gut, um, of the gut bacteria, it showed that there was almost, for want of a more, uh, for want of a more uh, uh, elegant word, it's almost as though the memory of, of being um, more of a plump or a little, a little fat mouse was actually carried in the microbiome. So when they transplanted it, um, what it did is, and they checked a few other things, and I'm, I'm super simplifying this, I'm happy to, to send you all the resource, but it basically showed that that there was almost a sense of memory in these, in, in these gut bacteria. So what that then helped us extrapolate was that this might be the reason that people who initially have gained weight and had you know, their microbiome changes and they lose the weight the microbiome and the gut bacteria don't necessarily, they, they don't forget that is, is probably the easiest way to say it. So therefore, it, it helped me understand why some of my patients have struggled with, you know, wow. with yo-yo dieting. So it, it's fascinating that um, it can be coded at that level, right, in the genetic material, and that each of our each of our unique microbiomes has like 39 trillion bacteria in it. You know, in fact, some studies have basically said we are more bacteria than we are human, and, and they're not wrong mm -hmm. in terms of cells. You've heard that before. Right. So, so I thought that was fascinating because it could also help us understand that you know we might have to do other things in terms of those healthy changes, maintain those healthy changes, not give up when it first doesn't happen, um, or we we feel like why can't we lose the weight? It's it sometimes is is tweaking that, developing that personalized kind of plan, but also looking at the, the, the impact on the gut. So you just answered a little bit of my questions, but my next question was going to be, how the heck do we forget, do we get our, our gut bacteria to forget the memory? <laughs> how do we like make, how do we wipe that memory clean? So that exactly. we can actually <laughs> So, so um, the, you know, I think it, it, it goes, it, it sort of goes back to that, um, to sort of cleaning house, you know, it goes back to how do we go back to the beginning and change those habits. And the patient I mentioned earlier, you know, he really traced back how his 
is dietary changed over a period of time. Often when I when I speak to to someone, they will tell me, you know, I started doing this differently. And sometimes it's not even something they realize. For example, I had um, and, um, a patient who came to me much later in life. And the reason I say that is she felt that she needed my help from the gut gut uh, microbiome perspective because she had to be on several trials of antibiotics due to some chest infections. And for that reason, she f- was feeling weak and fatigued and in a person who'd never felt anxious or, or depressed before. So she did come to see me. And she, I, I, I looked at her surprised at the end of the first hour of the interview. And I said, you know, you're eating a really healthy diet. And she smiled broadly and she said, but Dr. Naido, I have to tell you, my daughter told me to tell you that I love sugar. And I said, but you're not eating that much sugar in your diet. And she said, yes, but I love to bake. And so, you know, it was a whole other conversation because what was happening is she um, lived about an hour away from her grandkids and every week she was baking batches of cookies and a cake for the weekend. And as she was baking them, fully intended for them and taking it to them, she was also eating a good portion of that throughout the week. So she was saving herself one for each day. But what was happening is all the all the healthy eating that she was doing was also being disrupted by having what we sometimes call a sweet tooth. And really when we tried to work on that and find other ways that she could sweeten food and bake, even bake differently, um, you know, she started, she started to feel less fatigued was the first thing that we noticed with her over time. Hmm. That, which makes a lot of sense. Again, it goes back to eating the sugar and trying to at least minimize it or cut it out completely, which can be hard. It's so I, I get it. I love to bake too. And exactly. so I totally- <laughs> it's, it's, it's it, you know, I, 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 I'm one, I, you know, I'm with you on that because it, it's really hard, especially, especially during the circumstances we've been living through, people are doing a lot more baking. Um, using a lot of you know pantry staples in terms of food and uh, people are struggling with those things so do you cover sugar alternatives in your book so talking about let's say xylitol or stevia or monk fruit yeah so you know the a lot of the exactly so we touch on them in um in certain chapters uh because you know they also can drive anxiety and other things so i uh tend to be somewhat broad-based about it and and i i I don't feel that for me there's enough research to, to to say firmly you should use monk fruit versus i think it's healthier than a lot of the others as a stevia but i just don't think we know enough yet if i if i bake i tend not i'll just use you know try to either either use certainly when you know the science of baking some things you you need the ingredients in sugar to hold the structure of certain foods but um things like dates applesauce you know other other forms to sweeten food are, are, are worth looking into I'm a big fan of xylitol. I like, I mean, I know it has 40% less calories than sugar. I know it doesn't necessarily spike our blood sugar. And I actually like to bake with it because it has that one-to-one ratio um, sweetness to sugar and it just works really well. But I hear what you're saying as far as science goes. Um, but as far as you're looking for some type of an alternative and you, again, everything in moderation. And exactly. I think that's I'm going to, I'm going to try baking with it and, and see how do, how does it taste when you bake with it? So good. Okay. So good. I use Worth it in soups. I use yeah. it in baking. Yeah. Like I'm a mass, I'm a huge fan of xylitol. So, and I've been using it for many years, but again, awesome. everything in moderation. 
Now, before we end our interview, I just want to ask you a question. I know this is something you wanted to talk about. Again, we're talking about that gut-brain connection and the connection to our gut and our mental health. And as a psychiatrist, you obviously prescribe medication like antidepressants and Mm anti-anxiety medications. What are your thoughts on that in terms of helping mental health? And are there other ways as well, either in conjunction or on their own, that we can help to improve our mental health? Great. Well, thank you for asking that. You know, I I feel like there are different um, levels of illness that people come to see me for. And if someone is acutely ill, manic, has lost touch with reality, or severely depressed and suicidal, um, you know, food is not the first line of action. While we all have to eat and food is an extremely important intervention that we can make. Those individuals might require hospitalization, other forms of care first. But I've also seen individuals who have recovered beyond that acute phase and done very well with nutritional strategies and nutritional psychiatry to support what they're doing. However, there are many, many people who don't fall into a strict category of criteria that is used by most psychiatrists called the you know, the DSM-5-TR. And it's a, it's a diagnostic and statistical manual, and, and some of you may have heard of it. Many people don't fall into a strict category, and many people come in just having symptoms and feeling super anxious, but functioning. And I call this group of individuals sub-syndromal, so they, they don't have a syndrome, but they definitely have symptoms. And in those individuals, these types of interventions can be super helpful. So I uh, prescribe medications when needed, but I've really learned through my career that there are so many ways that you can you can um, approach this, and and I would really um, encourage people to be open to these other ideas. And other other ideas being like like you said, nutritional ways of looking at it. So exactly, eating food exactly. So you know, my my clinic at Mass General is in nutritional psychiatry. We have the first U.S. based. Um, clinic in this area, Nutritional and Lifestyle Psychiatry, based in uh, at an academic teaching center. And this is where we, we, we practice this type of work. So using nutritional interventions, nutrients, understanding of food, and creating a personalized plan that you can use to really improve your mental health is, is, is what we're doing all the time. Would you say that there is one nutritional supplement? I mean, we talked about the food a lot, but is there one nutritional supplement that you think everybody should be on for that gut-brain connection and the health of it? That's a tough one. Um, If if it's a supplement and you mean taking a pill, then um, I would have to say, you know, um, it's it's, for me, it would be difficult to choose between something like vitamin C. And uh, we're often very deficient in magnesium and magnesium drives so many things and so many important biochemical reactions. So I, if I have to pick one, that, that would be very hard. But, Even but your I top think, five is fine. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> I appreciate that liberty. Um, so I think omega-3s um, are important. I think they've been, they've, there's a good amount of data that's shown that they help depression and anxiety. So where they have a very low side effect profile, if any, um, my opinion of that is why not if, you, if you're going to take something that you're not going to try to get through food. Um, and then, you know, vitamin C, uh, some forms of magnesium, which I, you know, provide people list of food, uh, foods rich in that in the book. And um, turmeric, you know, we go back to turmeric and black pepper. Um, I sort of count them as one, even though they're two separate things. Uh, but, but those are the things I would usually go for. And vitamin D, I know there's a lot of research on vitamin, vitamin D, D and well. mental health. And then what are your thoughts on taking a probiotic? 
Um, you know, I, I feel like there's so much we can do with our food that, you know, again, if, you, if your doctor feels that that's, that's what you need to, to help you, if you really not well at that moment perhaps you should but really there there are very rich and easy ways to get this through foods that we eat yeah and i know for someone like myself when i take um even though i'm eating my fermented foods mm-hmm. i find taking a probiotic helps me personally mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. keeping my anxiety in bay. but i love that you're saying that it's not for everybody like some people they'll do very well with taking a supplement other people can get just as much out of food So I love that you have that option, right, for people. Again, this is your brain on food, and it's coming out. So we're we're doing this interview a little bit before it's coming out. It'll be on shelves or available at Amazon August 4th. Please, everybody, you should get a copy. It sounds like an incredible book, Dr. Naidu. I'm going to get a copy for myself once it's out, and I want to congratulate you on being a first-time author. It's very exciting. Thank you so much, Andrea. I really appreciate um, chatting with you and the great questions. And uh, thank you for supporting the book. Thank you. And how can people learn more about you if they want to, um, let's say, visit your center? If you can, again, give the name of your center and perhaps there's a website. Sure. So I work at Mass General Hospital. So you can find me there um, at, in, in the Department of Psychiatry under my name. Um, and if you want to find out more about me and the work that I do, follow us on our Instagram feed and all of our social media sites. And you can find all of those at umanaidumd.com. Um, and you'll also be able to get the book there if you're interested. So. Thank you. Thank you you so much for watching everyone. I hope you learned a lot because I sure did. If you liked what you saw today, give us a big thumbs up and hit that notification bell so that you know every single time we have a new Morphous video. And please share our video because the more you share shows you care. We appreciate you and we appreciate you watching. We'll see you next time.